Hello, Kevin. We are back. Once again, we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And tonight we are going to talk about something that's been stewing in our brains for a little while now. All the way back, since all the way back, whenever we talked about origins last year, if you haven't listened to that series, I'm kind of partial to that series myself because the question of origins and so many of the questions surrounding that particular topic was, that's a topic that's near and dear to my heart because that was one of the things that began my journey out of a legalistic perspective away from a fundamentalist perspective and more towards a grace-centered, Christ-centered perspective on what it means to serve God and follow Him. And central to that concept of origins and how all that works and where we all came from and how it all came to be, at its core is this idea of myth being a genre in the Bible. There were a lot of people whenever we did that episode and those those series of episodes um, that took issue with the statement that I used to describe what I believe Genesis was, and that is mythicized history or a parabolic historiography, a, a retelling of Israel's story in a parabolic or mythological way. And there are people that took issue with that. There are people that take issue with the concept of myth being a bona fide biblical genre. There are people, it, it gets their hackles up, they get defensive about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people don't even really know why they get defensive about it. And I, I think it boils down to this idea that if the Bible contains myth storytelling as a genre, well, then essentially a myth is a story that's untrue. And if the Bible contains a story that's untrue, well, then doesn't that cast a poor reflection on the scriptures themselves? Then I mean, if we can't believe what the Bible says about this in terms of literal truth, well, then we have to throw the whole thing out. So there's a lot of people that balk at this concept of myth being a biblical genre, a part of the Bible, a part of our spiritual heritage. But whenever you really take a deep dive into the scriptures, you see that you can't really ignore the fact that myth is a part of the corpus of scriptures that we possess. Absolutely. When you talk about myth, when that word comes to mind, it scares people. or it can scare people. It doesn't scare everybody, but it can scare people. But when we explain what it means to understand myth as a genre in the Bible, all we're talking about is that there are times when the Bible uses a fictional story to communicate truth. That's all we're talking about. And if you believe in the parables, then you believe that there is myth in the Bible. So hopefully that will already relax us a little bit (laughs) to understand that this isn't a scary concept. This isn't anything to fight. This isn't anything that's going to to, to lower Scripture to to a, a level of, you know, something that just doesn't matter, something that we should just disregard. It simply means that this is just one genre of uh, that that's used in scripture of lit of it's 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 just part of the literature found in scripture and as Dr. Kenton Sparks he put it he said all there although there have been many debates among scholars about the life of Jesus on this point it would seem that all New Testament scholars agree Jesus favorite teaching genre was the parable or to put this more brashly Jesus preferred genre for conveying truth was fiction 
And around 35% of all Jesus' recorded teaching in the Bible is parabolic. So when we talk about myth in the Bible, that's all we're talking about. We're just saying that there are fictional stories that are incorporated within Scripture to teach and communicate some sort of truth. Well, and I, I think that if we think about it in those terms, it's easier to understand and it is easier to accept. And I know of people and I have known people that have a hard time with the idea of the Bible not being 100% literally and historically true. I know of people that have said that, no, if Jesus told a story and he told a parable, Jesus wouldn't lie. Because to them, that is, that, that's the conflation, is that any projection or statement of fiction that's not literally true is a lie. I had a friend that I grew up with that wouldn't be in a play at church. And I, you know, we, when we were growing up and we were kids, he wouldn't be in a play in church. And I don't know if he was just, if he just had stage fright or, or whatever else, but he didn't want to take part in any any plays or skits or anything like that that we would do because he would have to act as though he were someone else. And that was a lie. And so, yes. So for this person and for other people with a similar perspective, you know, to consider the idea that Jesus said anything that wasn't literally factually true, well, then that's a stretch. And then my question is usually, well, what about the parable of the wedding feast in which that wedding guest was cast in the outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth? Like, was there literally outer darkness? Was it just a really dark, cold night and everyone was so cold that their teeth were chattering and that's gnashing? You know, you get into all these stories, but but no, the point remains true, though. I mean, scholars believe and know that Jesus, when he taught a parable, that parable was a fictional story that was also true. It wasn't literally true. It wasn't historically true, but it was a story that communicated truth. Another word for that would be fable, a parable, a myth. All of those things mean the same thing. Just because it didn't literally happen and it wasn't a part of history does not mean that it isn't true or that it doesn't communicate some truth. But well, Jesus's parables isn't the only place where you find myth being used in this way. Sorry, man, you, you were going to say something. What you got? Well, no, I was just going to ask you because most Christians, they will concede the fact that, yes, if that's what we mean by myth as a genre in the Bible, they have no problem with that because they recognize, by and large, most Christians recognize that the parables of Jesus, they they are exactly that. They're parables. They, they These myth stories meant to communicate some sort of truth. They weren't historically or literally true. They were uh, representatively true, if you will. They had a message that that was to represent. But what are some possible examples of myth as a genre in the Bible that some Christians may be unaware of? What are what are some that come to your mind when we talk about this? Well, I'll give an overview of just the ones that where I am now that I believe are myth. And and whenever I say myth, I don't mean it's completely untrue and it has no value and you're saying the Bible isn't real and it's not true and it's not trustworthy. We'll get to that directly, but that's not what I'm communicating. That's not what I'm saying at all. You know, whenever we use this term myth, this is a literary genre in which a lesson, moral or truth or ethical paradigm is being communicated. I don't know if that's the definition, but that's the definition that we are Man, operating really off good. of. We didn't even have that in our notes. I like that. 
Well, well, what can I say? I've, I've, I've got away with words sometimes. I've got that gift of gab. Uh, so anyway, but whenever we think about myth, that's what we're talking about. Even if something is not factually true. And, and I think about Nathan, whenever he went to David and confronted David about what he had done with Bathsheba, he told David the story of the little ewe lamb and the dude that had it. And he had a guest that came. You can read about that. And in, in, I think it's second Samuel, that is a myth. But it communicates fundamental truth about David's situation. So for examples of myth as genre in the Bible, you have Nathan telling that story to David. That comes to mind. For me, the garden story comes to mind, but not everybody agrees with that, especially in in other um, faith camps, especially those that are of the more evangelical mold. There are those that would disagree with Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters being constrained to myth. Um, The big ones for me would be, and we'll get into this first one here a little bit later, would be Jonah. I believe that Jonah is is mythological in its telling. I believe that Job is mythological in its telling as well. I don't believe that Job is a literal historical biography of a man named Job and all of the stuff that happened to him. Now, that wasn't always the case. I mean, for a long time, I read the book of Job as the account of a real person who lived just like you live, who lives just like I live, who is, you know, a dude that lived way back yonder. He had a lot of livestock. He had kids. He had everything going for him. And then terrible calamity happened at the hands of the adversary. Whenever I started looking at that text, whenever I started undoing some of the previous held presuppositions that I had about scripture. It seems as though Job's story as literal history just didn't work for me anymore. And I know that that is an example whenever you and I've had this conversation before, and we've kind of talked about this topic in this episode leading up to this episode. I know that's a, an example that you had given that, that you believe serves as a good representation of myth and scripture. Yeah, this is probably the the one that I've changed the most on with this book, the book of Job, the story of Job, because I remember as far back when I was in school and we were studying this particular book and I just started to question the factual historicity of it because it read more like a parable. The structure of it, it just, just seemed like a parable because we were studying poetry and we were studying Hebrew parallelism and those types of things and just different literary devices. And when I was reading this back then, I thought, well, this is interesting. I mean, I really didn't think much of it, but I just thought, well, this this just doesn't really seem like a real story, but I didn't really pay much mind to it at that time. And then as I started to study it more detail years later, and then over especially the past couple of years as I've been writing my book, this is something that I spent uh, a pretty pretty good amount of time looking into. And what's interesting about this is it may surprise many people to find out that this isn't really a new belief or a new debate. Even the Babylonian Talmud, um, we read about rabbis who were debating the book of Job, and many rabbis believed that it should not be understood as little literal history, but that it was just a big parable. It was this mythological story that was meant to talk about evil, pain, and suffering. And there's no real, as you pointed out, um, there's no, I think you pointed this out, there's no, uh, there's no genealogy for Job. There's, there's really no like real genealogical information about Job. And we don't even know exactly when these supposed events were supposed to take place. Many people place it long, 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 long before they were, it was actually written. 
because of what seems to be a lot of um, uh, archaic beliefs at that time, even prior what many believed to be prior to the law of Moses. And so a lot of people put it way back at the very beginning of time, but we really don't know. We just don't, we just don't know when it actually took place. And so you, you going all the way back to the Babylonian, Babylonian Talmud, a lot of rabbis didn't even believe that this was a real historical account of someone, but there's also internal factors to consider. Um, not just reading the story itself, but there's some specific factors that we can pinpoint. Um, for example, it starts like a parable. It says, there was a man, and this introductory formula is actually a common, commonly used literary device that parallels other parables in the Bible. Now, it's obviously true that this wording can sometimes be referring to a real person or historical event, but overall, this type of phrase in the Bible lends itself to be more indicative of a parable. It would be kind of like us saying, once upon a time. If, yeah. if I begin a story by saying, once upon a time, that signifies to the audience that, okay, this isn't really a real story, but it's just meant to communicate some sort of truth. And you also see that the rest of the book, beside from the prologue and the epilogue, is highly figurative and poetic. There's all sorts of literary markers throughout the book that point to Job being a fictitious story, including mythical creatures. And so the type of po uh, poetic literature and structure used in the book of Job, once again, read like a parable or fictitious story than it does some sort of historical account. And also, I just think if you look at the storyline itself, if you read it as literal history, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, the story takes us through this long process of how God allows literally the Satan, or an opponent, or a persecutor, to have his way with Job, while Job's friends question Job's faithfulness, and aside from Job going through all sorts of health problems, losing his financial assets, God even allows Satan to kill his children. But then the story ends with this supposed, quote-unquote, happy ending of God giving Job twice as much as he had before and even blesses him with more children. But uh, as any parent will tell you who's lost a child, with my mom and dad are uh, parents who can tell you what it's like to lose one child, you cannot replace children, much less all of them. And so overall, the book of Job just has the tone of a parable. And finally, one other point I wanted to bring up real quick is that there are also other ancient Near Eastern stories, such as the Babylonian poem, which is translated the poem of the righteous sufferer, and the Sumerian work that's called Man and His God that question their gods as to why bad things happen to good people. And uh, in, in the story, for example, of the poem of the righteous sufferer, uh, this man, who is the main character, he's been inflicted with various diseases and pains and hardships. He loses a lot of his assets. And while asserting his own righteousness, he asks his gods why bad things are happening. Sounds pretty familiar, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, the thing is, all of these writings and stories are several hundred years earlier than the book of Job. <laughs> so these these writings predate the book of Job. So what this shows is that it wasn't uncommon for the people groups during that time, the ancient Near Eastern people groups, to write in parabolic form using this literary device of myth as genre to explain, talk about, discuss 
evil, pain, and suffering. So when you take all of that into consideration, I was convinced, yes, this this is probably a parable. This is not meant to be a real story. Well, I want to jump on that too. And and everything that you said, I track right there with you 100%. And we're, we're definitely in the same camp whenever it comes to that. But lately, the most popular movies are Marvel movies. I mean, the Marvel franchise is absolutely oh, yeah. huge. And people are wondering, what in the world does Captain America or Spider-Man have to do with Job? It's huge. Those stories are not true stories, but they tell us a truth about mankind. They tell us a truth about humankind, if you prefer. They tell us truths about human nature and what it means to, to overcome things. You go back into the 50s, and the predominant form of entertainment that, that most folks like were Westerns. I mean, you, you probably remember sitting down and watching Westerns with your grandparents. I mean, I remember watching Westerns with my grandpa and thinking, oh, yeah. oh, this is so boring. And just my, thinking, mom, still, so my mom and dad watch Gunsmoke every day. Well, dude, Still, it was one of the yeah. longest running series of all time. <laughs> anyway, the point being is, is that you had one Western, maybe Gunsmoke or Rawhide being the prototypical Western. And then you had all of these other movies take over because that story resonated with the people of that time in these Marvel movies. Those stories resonate with the people in our time. Same thing with Star Wars. Same thing with any of these other franchises that have been established. You go all the way back to the ancient Near East, and here's the connection to Job, and you look at those stories that were written that predate Job, and you see the narrative and thematic overarching elements that are contained within that genre. It makes sense that people would write stories like this to relate themselves to God and to relate themselves to what is happening in their lives to answer these hard questions that they struggle to answer and that we still struggle to answer today. But what you said about this story, having these thematic elements and the structure of the story itself lending itself to probably be more of a parable than an actual literal history of a literal person named Job that lived in a literal place and had all this literal stuff happen to him. It makes a lot more sense, especially to me, whenever you think about the accuser, the, what is it in, in, in Hebrew, the Hasatan or, or whatever it is, whenever you have this, this prosecutor coming up to God and talking to him, that, that entire picture, those entire, those events that take place in that divine throne room, that to me lends itself to more of a parabolic and mythological interpretation than viewing Job as literal history. Yeah. And that to me is one of the best markers that indicates that this is the case because it, one of the things we talk about, we've been talking about a lot recently in our more recent episodes on this podcast is the meta narrative of scripture, the trajectory of scripture and God allowing something like this, allowing the adversary to come against Job in this manner it really doesn't jive with the rest of what we see revealed about God in scripture. So that in and of itself seems like that is a fictional construct designed to drive the literary narrative forward more than it is a literal retelling of literal history that actually happened. Yeah. Let me ask you this to get your thoughts. So you had mentioned, <clears throat> obviously you don't believe Job is a real, was a real historical character. What do you do with passages um, that allude back to Job 
that would seem to indicate, at least from a just straightforward reading, that Job was a real character. Is that just a faulty assumption to to assume just because someone later writes about Job that that should indicate that they were a real person? I think so. And and just to put a finer point on it, there is a uh, there's a preacher within the One Cup Brotherhood who I love dearly. I mean, this guy, he's one of my favorite speakers I've ever heard. He's one of the few preachers I've ever heard that talks really fast, but you can understand what he's saying. There are some people that talk really, really fast and you have a hard time following what they're saying. This cat has it down to a science. He talks fast. He talks loud, but he articulates and, and, and states every word clearly. You can follow what he says. He has, as most preachers do, that he has a famous sermon of his within the One Cup Brotherhood called Pandora's Box. And he links, he talks about Greek mythology, talks about how, you know, pan, you know, all the evil in the world was stuffed into Pandora's box. And then someone, I don't remember who it was, opened the box and all the evil spilled out into the world. And he and he likens that to various things. But the point is, he looks at that Greek myth and he uses that to teach another truth or what he perceives to be a truth of what the Christian life is. Just because he references Pandora's box doesn't mean that Pandora's box was a real thing. It also doesn't mean that this particular preacher believes that Pandora's box was a real thing. Yeah. And whenever you think about it in those terms, if someone is referring back to Job, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person believed Job was a real person. Whether that person who alludes to Job or references Job believes that they were a real person or not is immaterial. The point that they make about Job, it, it doesn't matter if Job was real or not. What matters is the truth that that story tells. Yeah, and you you pointed that out. You can say something or say someone's name or a character, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily are validating them as a real person, simply the truth that that story brings about. Growing up, my dad and, and my granddad, they were huge fans of the Andy Griffith Show. Yes. And I remember they would talk about Barney as if he was a real person all the time. And they would even make comments, you know, you're acting like Barney, or they would just say something like that. And, you know, Barney Fife. And uh, growing up, I thought Barney was like a real character. I didn't realize he was just someone on the TV. I thought that he was like a real person just because of the way my, my dad and granddad talked about him. Well, there was never one time when they thought that he was actually real, they understood that, but they were just speaking as if he was because of the story and because of what they knew about him. And so we can understand this from a practical standpoint, but I want to bring out something that I found very interesting. When you compare the Bible to other ancient ancient Near Eastern texts, it helps us to have a better understanding of how they would have written things as well. Because the Jews back then, they were people who lived in archaic times, in ancient times. And uh, we can begin to compare other ancient Near Eastern documentation with texts of the Bible. And Pete Inns, actually, Dr. Pete Inns, or I'm sorry, Kenton Sparks actually brings this point up, um, where he specifically talks about how this was this was common for people groups in the ancient Near Eastern to include uh, even genealogies 
and talk about people who they didn't really believe had existed, but they just did that as part of their storytelling. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Dr. Sparks specifically discusses the fictitious Sumerian king list and their very long lifespans. And he actually talked about how the uh, Mesopotamian king list stresses the special importance of the seventh king and his wise advisor and gives specific names to them. But they actually did not believe that these individuals really existed. But they would incorporate genealogies and they would incorporate uh, their names as they're talking about them later on as if they were real, even though they didn't believe that they were real historical figures. So I just find that interesting that even when you include, even if Job were to have a genealogy, uh, a detailed genealogy, even if people mentioned him later on, which we see that in Ezekiel and James, and even if that's the case, that wasn't uncommon for people during that time to include genealogies and call them by name as if they were a real person in stories, even if they recognized that they really weren't. You talked about Spider-Man and Captain America. Well, if 2,000 years from now, someone's listening to our podcast and we're making a point about Captain America, I hope someone doesn't say, well, Kevin must believe that there really was a Captain America. No, I don't. <laughs> but we can talk about him and even even preachers today will use characters who are well-known in these stories to make a point. Yeah. And they don't have to say, but I don't believe they really didn't exist. It's just understood because that's not the point of them telling the story. Yeah, and and that to me is the biggest takeaway that that we need to understand whenever we think about this concept of biblical myth and narrative storytelling. All stories have a purpose. You know, if you look at X-Men, which was my favorite comic book growing up, loved X-Men. They're the OG original good superhero movies from back in the early 2000s. Whenever the X-Men, <laughs> and this is something, and I don't know if my parents know this, but whenever the X-Men movie came out, they weren't showing it in Ardmore. We lived in Ringling at the time and they weren't showing it in Ardmore. And me and my brother and our childhood best friend that practically lived at our house during the summer we were X-Men fanatics. We were ready to go see the X-Men movie. We wanted to go see it. It wasn't shown in Ardmore. Well, I didn't have permission from my parents to drive to Duncan to watch it where it was showing. And so we said we were going to go over to my buddy's house. Well, we actually drove to Duncan and we watched the X-Men movie. So, yeah. So, Mom, yeah, if you're listening, yeah, that that actually happened. Yeah, this is my first time telling you about it's it. your but, confession. I mean, yeah, this is my confession. I mean, it's been 22 years ago, so the statute of limitations has passed. But it, I digress. The point is, the the purpose of X-Men, you have Professor Charles Xavier that is an analog of Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And you have Magneto, who was kind of an analog, or I, I don't want to say he was intended to be an analog. He became an kind of an analog and a caricature of Malcolm X and Malcolm X's position. Point being, the story of the X-Men was one of civil rights. It was one of inclusiveness. It was one of not otherizing people because they're different from you. They were mutants. They were hated by the world. That's the theme of the story. That's the purpose of the story. Of course, the primary purpose was to sell comic books. The primary purpose was to make money and get kids to buy it and aggravate their their moms and their dads when they were at the store to buy this nickel comic book or, or whatever else because they had bright, pretty colors <laughs> and what have you. But the theme and the moral of the story was one of inclusiveness. It was one. It was a parable against racism. 
And whenever we look at the scriptures, we need to think about what is the purpose of the story? What is the story trying to tell us? Is the purpose of Job to outline the biography of an ancient Near Eastern man and all of the calamity he suffered? Or is the purpose something deeper than that? Did the Holy Spirit inspire whoever wrote Job to write it down and to tell that story to communicate what actually happened to somebody? Or did the Holy Spirit have something else in mind? Is there something else going on with that story? And in my mind, if you have to pick, is this history or is this you know, a, a truth, uh, something that has layers upon layers of deeper meaning, which is the more sophisticated perspective? Yeah. And, and, that, and that's not to say that people that hold a historical perspective are not as sophisticated as those who don't on, on the book of Job, but there's a whole lot more impact theologically speaking and spiritually speaking when Job is viewed as a parable versus a historical fact. And in fact, if you look at it as historical fact, you have a lot of problems to overcome. God letting the the adversary kill all of Job's kids. Yeah. Dude, I mean, that to me is that that's well, a bless, huge mark against God. And then blessing him with twice as many as if children can be replaced like a new set of dishes. Yeah, exactly. It It impugns the character of God, in my opinion, to view Job as a historical book, but whenever it's viewed as parable, well, those tensions go away because the purpose isn't to communicate a truth. Well, its purpose is to communicate a truth about God, but not that historical truth of God allowing all of this stuff to happen as some cosmic bet with yeah. the Satan, with the adversary. Were you going to say something? No, that's it. That's all I had okay. to say. I, I was I was deferring I know, back I over to you. If you were frozen or not there for a minute. <laughs> I'll keep moving then. That way you'll um, know I didn't freeze up. Yeah, yeah. It's like, all right, is this frozen? Um, no, but I, I just think that that's it's very interesting when you do begin to to look at some of these stories because I don't even think that someone has to come to the conclusion that some of these stories are myth or parabolic. I think it's fine if they still want to believe that it's actual literal history. Uh, but I do want to throw that out there just so people can know that this is a possibility. And I personally believe it's not just a possibility, but a probability that stories such as these, especially in the Old Testament that we're talking about, probably didn't actually happen. And one of the questions that sometimes can come up is, well, how do we determine what is the gauge that one should use when we're talking about viewing something as a myth in the Bible versus actual historicity? And I think that's a very good question because we we shouldn't just think that we can arbitrarily go to the Bible and say, oh, I like this. This will be literal history. Oh, I don't like this. I'm just going to call this a story. I think we have to, to be careful not to present it in that way. Um, now, sometimes it's very clear because the text tells us that it's a parable or that it's a story. Yeah. Uh, even even in Judges chapter 9, where the Bible talks about uh, the parable there, where, where Jotham is, is giving his parable. And we already talked about Jesus and his parable. Sometimes these stories are it's very clear. We, we know that they're parables. We don't have any problem with it. It's when the Bible is not clear or it doesn't explicitly state this is a parable or this is a story that 
is just going to teach a a message that you shouldn't take as a literal story. It's when the Bible doesn't give us that kind of clarity that we begin to say, well, how do we know? How do we determine? And so when the text doesn't tell us, we have to consider factors. And there's a lot of factors that scholars consider, such as the placement of the story, science, archaeology, comparisons with other ancient Near Eastern texts, internal comparisons within the Bible itself, other theological considerations, and a host of other literary devices. And so in other words, this is not an arbitrary, haphazard process. But even when scholars in all these specific fields do study to try and make a determination, we have to remain humble because there does remain a lot of uncertainty. And that's why I'm careful with saying if someone still wants to take some of these stories as literal history, that's fine. They can believe that. I don't think that's going to going to send them to hell or anything of that nature. I don't think that that's going to be caused to mark them as someone who doesn't love God or who is a false teacher or anything like that. But when someone does begin to study and it does affect their faith in a negative way, they need to realize that there are alternatives to understanding some of these passages in different ways and in ways that I think are much to be much more in my opinion, fair to the text to realize that these are not meant to to be taken as literal history. And Lee, I know we've talked a lot about science in the Bible, but this was something that was huge for you because, you know, many Christians, they might be alarmed at the idea of how myth is a genre in the Bible, but really there are ways where this can be liberating in helping us understand the Bible and how it operates, that we don't have to make everything fit into this little box of literal history. And I know that for you, this was a huge deal. This was a huge deal when it came to evolution and creation and what the Bible says. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Because maybe our audience didn't get to hear that episode or several of those episodes, but how did that play a factor in your own faith? And how did that hinder your faith when you believe that everything had to be literal history. Well, now that we're getting somewhere, including our Q&As into like the 80s and the 90s, as far as our numbers of episodes go, I mean, brother, we're getting close to 100 episodes that we've recorded. And that to me is huge. Well, early on in this, I told my story about where I came from. You can go back into our archives and you can listen to that. I uh, gave my story and told the story about science and faith and how unpacking that helped me move along. So if you want the long version, go listen to those episodes and it'll go into gory detail. So I'll keep it brief here for me, as I studied more and more about the human body and studied more about anatomy and physiology and biology, especially genetics, I was more and more and more convinced about the creation and that God had a divine hand in creating everything and bringing everything to bear. I saw the fingerprints of creation all over that. As I learned more about genetics and as I learned more about evolution, because there wasn't a lot of time spent on evolution. Evolution was quote, just a theory. And by the way, that's one of the worst things you can ever say about evolution. If you don't know anything about it is that it's just a theory. I mean, that's, that's pretty much if something is a scientific theory, that is one of the highest echelons of certainty you can have in something. So to say it's just a theory, it's it's kind of ridiculous. So well, don't and, ever and say this that. is this is something that you have 
studied a lot. This is something that you did study a lot. I mean, you've you not only are a doctor, but you've also you've also taught at a collegiate level, right? As well, you've taught science yes. on a collegiate level as well. So this yeah, is I've, something that you were faced with on a on a day to day basis. Yes, and and for me, the 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 cognitive dissonance that manifested itself in terms of evolutionary biology wasn't the biggie. I could still rationalize that because I knew enough about it to rationalize it. There were still some things I couldn't quite answer, like why a, a divine designer would give a giraffe an ansa cervicalis that's all, that's more than twice as long as its own neck. And if you don't know what that means, Google it. I'm not going to go into it now because that's not what we're getting into. But what got me was the literal six day creation. I can see how special creation can be a thing until you get into astrophysics. Astrophysics for me was something I could not make fit with a literal perspective on Genesis. If Genesis is meant to be read as a literal book or a literal story, a historical telling of truth, this is exactly how things happened. There was no time and then there was no light and there was nothing. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then time began and light began and we're off to the races. Now, if that happened six to 8,000 years ago, I couldn't make that square with what I could see and study and read about. Astrophysics is what drove me near the breaking point. And I go into all that in detail in those stories. And what liberated me so much to get back to the question was being able to accept that the purpose of Genesis might not be to teach us literally how everything began. Maybe Genesis is a polemic against the ancient Near Eastern gods. Maybe it's Israel's way of saying Yahweh, Jehovah, is higher above all these other gods that we find ourselves surrounded by. Maybe the purpose of Genesis isn't to tell us anything about how the world began, but it's designed and written in such a sophisticated way to reveal something to us about who God is and why God created us in the first place. And one of the things we talked about in those other episodes is you have the Enuma Elish story in which the world is flooded and, and you know, all these other things, all these other things happen and the, the world is flooded because of, uh, and everybody dies. Um, and now I'm going blank on why that's the case. So let's just move on behind beyond that and go into the Atrahasis epic because I remember that one. Um, the gods created mankind so that they could do menial work for them. And then the higher gods got annoyed at the noise man was making. And so they flood the earth to kill them all. Well, Israel's saying maybe Genesis is designed to communicate the idea that our God doesn't make us to do menial labor for him. Our God created us to be his image bearers and to bring us into fellowship with him. Yeah. He invites us to dwell with him. He invites us to rest with him. That's the God we serve. And to me, that has a whole lot more impact. And it hits me in a whole lot better way and different way and in a deeper way than the idea that Genesis's design is to communicate literal historical truth about the origins of all things. I don't believe that's the case at all. I believe that Genesis serves a much stronger purpose in communicating something about God to us. Yeah. And it, that helped me more than anything else. Well, and you had turned me on to Ben Stanhope's book, Misinterpreting Genesis, How the Creation Museum Misunderstands the Ancient Near Eastern Context of the Bible. And when we talk about the the museum, we're talking about the Ark Encounter, which is very popular among many Christians. 
And here is where Lee, you have done a great job about, or you, you, I think I personally think you've done a really good job about explaining your position without forcing people to have to take that position while allowing that to be there. Because, you know, I, I think that you're right. And especially the more that I've studied this, the more I've studied ancient Near Eastern documents, when I, more I've learned about how science works and how the Bible works, some of these things to me at this point are very clear in my mind. But to a lot of people going to the Ark Encounter, that can be what they call so faith building. They'll say, oh, you know, I experienced this and this is just so faith building. But then they get challenged on a few things and it can really start to hinder their faith. And a lot of there's plenty of atheists out there who definitely have been refuting this stuff for many years. And instead of providing an alternative way of understanding scripture and allowing scripture to incorporate myth as part of the story and a part of the literary device and genre and the way that the ancients wrote to try to just double down. I mean, I appreciate what Dr. Ken Ham is trying to do, and I think it's coming from a good place. I think he's a Christian. I think he's saved, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want to try to put all those qualifiers out there. But I think also what he's doing is he's he's ultimately hurting a lot of people's faith because he is basically saying in order to have faith, a godly faith, you have to believe all these things happened historically the way that they have, they're unfolded in Scripture and that's just not true. That that's that's something that I think we have to just be so careful about. And that's why I'm so glad that you've turned me on to to, to these alternative resources from these genuine scholars who have been studying this, who are still Christian. We had Dr. Dennis Lemaru, who's got more doctorates than a thermometer. He has his doctorates in, uh, I believe, biology, has doctorates in theology, and he's a dentist. And, you know, these are Christians. These are Christians who are saying, no, 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 no. We can be honest here. We can be honest with the text and say, this is not the way it's to be read. The, the, the Bible was not created in six literal days. No, we have enough science to realize that's not how this thing works. No, there's no way that the whole world could have been wiped out 6,000 years ago, and we have all of these new species today that came from just two of specific types of animals. There's no way. We can look at that and realize there's no way that that could have happened. And we can be honest, and then we can look at other ancient Near Eastern texts and realize, hey, they have the same type of stories. Many of these stories are older than the stories in the Bible, so maybe these aren't meant to be read literally. Maybe these aren't meant to be read historically. These are meant to be read as parabolically. And when you do that, that really changes the game. Oh, it absolutely does. And whenever you take science into account, whenever you take archaeology into account, you take geology into account— just in terms of science, I mean, that doesn't in and of itself necessarily mean that the passage in question should be regarded or genrefied or classified, that's the word, as mythological. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case, but that's an indicator that that could be. I think that there are plenty of markers internally, that there are some literary markers that indicate that something should be classified as myth as well. One thing I, I want to get back to this, because I said it earlier, is not only do I believe that Jonah was mythological, or rather Job was mythological in nature, but I also believe that Jonah was too. And that ties into all of these concepts that we're talking about. 
so often whenever we think of Jonah, we think about Jonah and the fish. We think about Jonah and the whale. Well, how could a man live inside a fish's belly for three days? How could a man live inside a whale's belly for three days? Whatever you want to put, Jonah the fish, Jonah the whale. Do you really think he didn't drown? Do you really think he stayed in the belly of the fish or or there without being digested and all this other stuff? You have atheists that that use that as a talking point. That's a talking point that I used whenever I was in my atheistic phase. I mean, that's something that people say. That's a critique levied against it. But whenever you look at Jonah, to me, what people become so incredulous about is the fish element of that story. To me, what what indicates that the book of Jonah is more than likely mythological or parabolic is what we see happen when Jonah finally makes it to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, right? So that, that famous question that the dude asked, uh, um, oh, who was it, sir? Was it Sir Galahad and Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Whenever he asked him, what's your name? What's your quest? What's the capital of Assyria? Well, the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. So the Assyrians had taken Israel into captivity. They had conquered Israel, and they were responsible for what's called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, the diaspora or diaspora, the scattering of those 10 northern tribes of Israel. Israel hated the Assyrians. They hated them with every fiber of their being. That's the driving narrative force as to why Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He hates the Ninevites. They are Israel's conquerors. So he gets on a ship and he literally goes the other direction. Well, God sends the storm. God sends the fish. The fish swallows him. Jonah's in the belly of the fish. And then, bleh, he's regurgitated on a dry land, right? Well, then he goes into Nineveh and he preaches. He preaches to the people, and it's probably the shortest sermon ever given. He's like, repent, or in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. And then he goes, sits outside, and sulks under a tree or a little bean plant or whatever that grows. Point being, what happens? What do the Ninevites do? Well, they repent. They repent, right? (laughs) At what level does Nineveh repent? Do a few people take his message and run with it? No. No. It's the entire city that repents. Everybody. In the Bible, yeah, everybody. The story says that the king repents all the way down to the poorest of the poor. The men, the women, the children, the king himself, they tear their clothes, they sit in sackcloth and ashes, and then they follow God. And Jonah is aggrieved at this. He is upset that God would show mercy. The ending of that story to me is in large part what indicates that this is a parable. Because the Assyrian Empire is very well understood. It's very well documented. Archaeology and anthropologists have found a lot of information about Assyria. And you know what they have never found? What's that? They have never found any verification that the end of Jonah's story is true. There is no indicator that I'm aware of that has been found that demonstrates that the king of Assyria cast off all of their foreign gods that they served and followed Jehovah. They followed Yahweh. There is nothing in history or anthropology that has been uncovered that indicates that what happens at the end of Jonah ever happened. So to me, that brings about the question, well, what's going on with Jonah? And in Jonah, whenever you do a deep dive into it, you see Jonah and the belly of the fish. There's a lot of language that that overlaps, and and we're getting a little far afield. This is supposed to be a podcast about Jonah, but there's a lot of language 
that indicates that Jonah is dying. Jonah is going to the underworld, that the fish in, in ancient myth, mythology was a vessel that would carry the souls of the dead down under the deep and into the underworld. The idea is that Jonah didn't stay in the belly of the fish. There are a lot of scholars that believe this, a lot of ancient rabbis that believe this and have taught this. Jonah died, and then God brought him back to carry that message. And when you think about that in terms of what Jesus said about the sign of the prophet Jonah, well, then you can see the correlation between Jesus and Jonah. You have Jesus referring to this story, which I believe was largely understood to be a parable or myth in and of itself to make a point about himself. In any case, though, that to me is is another example of how this can liberate you, but you know, whenever you start to think about these things, especially when you've been trained and conditioned to look at the Bible in a particular way for a long period of time, for your entire life, there are some fears that can lead to some extreme reactions about just the prospect that myth could be a genre of of scripture. And I'd like to ask you a question. Is that something that you've experienced? I mean, or, or is that a fear that you ever had whenever you were going through this process? Because I know it's a fear that oh, I yeah. had. Yeah, no doubt. Because what happens is when you when some of this deconstruction begins to take place, which is a word that we sometimes use here, and I think sometimes it's overused in some circles, but that is what it is. You're, you're deconstructing the way in which you once understood Scripture. And when you look at how the Bible is written— and you begin to take it for what it actually is instead of take it for what you were taught that it was. And you still believe it's inspirational. It's, uh, well, let me not just say inspirational. It's inspired by God, but the way in which it's inspired and what that means begins to change based upon what is actually revealed in Scripture. And so, so instead of trying to force how you would like inspiration to operate, you have to change your views based upon how inspiration actually does operate in Scripture. (laughs) And and that's how we have to understand inspiration. So when you do that, there's a lot of fears because it goes against that, at least for me, it went against the view that I of inspiration that I was taught. And it wasn't that it went against the Bible. It went against how I was taught to understand the Bible. In fact, what I was changing was to have a better understanding and appreciation of how the Bible actually did behave. Instead of domesticating it and modernizing it to fit my expectations, I had to change my views to see how the Bible operated within itself. So there were a lot of fears when that happened, when you start talking about myth. One of them, one of my fears was that, okay, well, what can we trust then? If I can't trust everything in the Bible as being historically accurate, well, then how can I know of anything? is historically accurate. How can I know if anything really happened? And it's not uncommon for people to jump right to the accusation, well, we can't even trust Jesus then. I mean, we can't even trust if, how do we know Jesus wasn't just one big myth? The story of Jesus, how do we know that wasn't just all lies that that someone wrote down? And I think that's a fair question. But the first thing, if you if you tr- walk down this path, you have to actually be willing to walk down it. You can't just stick your foot in it and then run. You have to actually be willing to walk down and educate yourself on how the Bible really does behave and operate, and especially how archaeology works and how history works and how determining 
if something was or probably was history versus if it probably wasn't. So once it's been established that some of these stories, we've predominantly been talking about the Old Testament. So once it's been established that some of these stories that are in the Old Testament, that they should or at least could be understood more properly as inspired fictitious stories, then people can say, well, what stops one from claiming that the whole New Testament is just one big fictitious parable? And I think that these types of questions, they, they come from an honest place, but they're also riddled with either ignorance or misinformation of how the Bible and history and archaeology correlate. Yeah, so dude, the, you just ascribed me to a T on that from the <laughs> past. So yeah, no, that you're spot on. Yeah, so so the first thing when it, when when people email me and they go, "Oh, Kevin, you know what about this?" and I, you know, how do we know? And especially Lee, when we started talking about Genesis, and at least for the first twelve chapters, probably being myth, perhaps everything all the way up to the kings, maybe being being a myth. And and people said, "Well, oh, that just you know, oh my goodness, I mean, this just discredits." The whole Bible, this just upends everything. Well, the first thing I tell people is take a deep breath because no, it doesn't. <laughs> the, the, the implications of this are actually <clears throat> not as much as one would think, especially when they take into consideration archaeology. And so here's the first thing I tell people. Take a deep breath. Second of all, the Bible is written over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years so while the historicity of some of the Old Testament stories can be highly questionable by most scholars at times, especially due to the absence of any evidence and other internal considerations as well, we begin to see the first verifiable historical mention of Israel in the early 1200s BCE. And in addition to this, there's a, a Moabite stone that's very interesting that dates somewhere between 840 to 850 BCE, and it was found in Jordan. And it correlates with certain events and aspects from Second Kings chapter three verses four through eight, including mentioning that Yahweh is the God of the Israelites. And so the reason why I bring that up is because when you go back and you start looking at that time period around you know the mid to late eight eight forty eight fifty eight sixty that time period BCE that's when we begin to start having a whole lot of archaeological evidence. And the text and monuments of other ancient Near Eastern people groups also contain information that correlate with Old Testament biblical text too. But when it comes to the New Testament, the closer we get to Jesus in the first century, the more historical and archaeological evidence there is available. One reason is because it's closer in time and there were more advancements, and there's more things that have survived. But by the time we get to Jesus, there's no serious debate about whether he existed. In fact, it's undeniably clear that he did. Uh, in fact, we currently have more ancient writings that talk or mention Jesus Christ than mention the Roman emperor Tiberius, who reigned during Jesus' lifetime. And so to put it into perspective, the number of ancient writers who mention Jesus outnumber those who mention Tiberius by a ratio of four to one. Wow. And according to the most well-known early church historian, Dr. Bart Ehrman, or one of the most well-known early church historians, he's a non-Christian, by the way. He used to be a Christian. He's not anymore. But even he go, he says this. He says, virtually, or the belief that Jesus historically existed is believed by virtually every expert in the field. And he wrote a really good book called Did Jesus Exist? 
And once again, he's not even a Christian, but he's willing to admit the evidence that, yes, Jesus did historically exist. Now, he has some interesting things to say about who Jesus was and what people believed about him. But the thing is, is that we can look at Jesus as a historical figure. So in other words, when it comes to talking about whether Jesus, Paul, and some of the other New Testament figures historically existed, yes, we have more than enough evidence to believe that they did. That That's not a debate. And so it's not a fair parallel to say, well, because the creation story may be just one big parable, then we can't believe that Jesus ever existed. That That's not even... Like, atheists don't even make that argument. I mean, that that's not even a, a comparable argument to make because you're dealing with something, and that's like comparing apples with oranges. And so what we read about is, yes, there are things that we don't know existed in the Old Testament. In fact, based upon the archaeology we do have, the discoveries we do have, there's a good chance a lot of those stories, especially pre, pre-Kings, either didn't happen at all, they were meant to be myth stories, parabolical stories, or they didn't happen exactly the way they were recorded. There was a lot of twists and spins that have been added by those human authors. And I believe that that is actually all part of inspiration. Why? Because I believe in inspiration, and I believe the Bible has to be the determining factor of defining what inspiration is, not our conservative, modern-day version of what we want inspiration to be. (laughs) Well, dude, I'm glad you brought inspiration into it because I really think that's the linchpin that drives so much of the fear that surrounds someone being able to accept this concept that myth is a genre of biblical literature. Yeah. Because if I accept that myth is a part of this, well, then I can't trust any of it. Then what do I do with Jesus? And I, I think you, I think you stated that extremely well in what you just shared. But for a lot of people, it comes down to inspiration and there's giant leaps that have to be taken that sometimes strain credulity in making it all fit. You have to make it all fit and you can drive yourself insane if you try to make it all fit. Well, it doesn't because it doesn't fit (laughs) and that's exactly it. And you can lose your faith. I know I did for a season trying to make it all fit. And there are other factors that went into that at that point in my life. But often what happens whenever we do try to make it all fit and we ignore this idea is where we, number one, we bring to the Bible our presupposition of what it should be. And then we try to force the scriptures to fit into the mold of what we believe it should be yeah. because we have a particular under a particular understanding of what inspiration is, but the Bible doesn't fit that mold. And it's almost as if God did that on purpose you know, you look at this and it's like, well, this is all going to be a cohesive narrative that tells history, literal history from beginning to end with a few little deviations in Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, etc. <laughs> and God's almost, it's almost like God sitting over me like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to put two different creation stories right next to each other in chapter one and two. Let's see what you do with that there, hotshot. It, it almost seems like that's what he's, what he's doing. It's almost like it was done on purpose. And I think that we do a lot better if we stop trying to shoehorn the Bible into fitting the mold we believe it should fit into, and we accept the scriptures that God gave us for what they are. We just accept that this is the Bible. This is what it is. These are the conventions and the genres that it falls into. 
And yeah, it takes more than just a cursory reading or an overview reading of it. A straightforward reading is the term you like to use in your book. And folks, by the way, this book's Dynamite Brother. I can't wait to read the revision whenever you're done with it. The rough draft was fantastic, and I can't wait to see how it gets better, man. It's good. You guys are going to love this book. But well, I've had uh, Dr. Linda King's review in it, Dr. Grant Testu, Dr. Chip Cooley, several folks, uh, even a couple of my friends who are uh, way more conservative than I am. They're reviewing it as well because I'm trying to get as many eyes on this as possible. I want to be fair. I want to be honest. Um, with what I'm doing. And Lee, I agree with everything you're saying about the Bible, because here's what it comes down to. We have to take the Bible seriously. Yeah. And we cannot take the Bible seriously if we are not willing to take the Bible as it is. If, if we are wanting to take the Bible with our modern expectations, what we're saying is, no, God, I don't want to take the Bible as you gave it to me. I want to, I want to take the Bible the way that I was taught to read the Bible. And if, and yeah. if I, if I can't read the Bible the way I want to read the Bible, well, I'm just going to reject it. That's the way some Christians behave. Yeah. And, 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 and they're the ones who are saying, we're not taking the Bible seriously. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, what do you think the best way to take the Bible is the way God <laughs> gave it to us or the way that your preacher at church is telling you to read it. And, yeah. and and that that's why it just blows my mind that Christians have not only disagreed over this, but they've made this a point of contention. And the ones who are making this a point of contention are the ones who have domesticated the Bible. They're yeah. the ones who have cleaned the Bible up. I mean, part of the book I talk about, let's get honest with how the Bible uh, does present women as second-class citizens. That we, we have to be honest with that. Now, yeah. how, how we relate to that what that means, we can we can talk about that. Sure, we can talk about what that means. But what is not up for debate is what the Bible actually says. So we 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 can we can debate interpretation. We can debate. But when the Bible clearly states that men have more rights than females, that women were treated as property, to try to modernize that and go, well, you know, that's that's no, that's the people who claim that they just don't know the Bible. Bull crap. I mean, the people who say otherwise are the ones who have tried to clean up the Bible to the point of making it fit what they want it to say. And and, and it's frustrating to me because so many people, I believe, are non-believers because believers have told them they have to view the Bible in a certain way instead of, you know, we always talk about let the Bible speak for itself. We don't do that. We don't do that. Yeah. Letting the Bible speak for itself does not mean a straightforward reading. Letting the Bible speak for itself means taking into consideration the context, taking in, in, uh, into consideration not just the immediate context, the remote context, taking into consideration the cultural context, taking consideration all the different ways in which God accommodated their ancient understandings during that time. That's what it means to take the Bible seriously. When someone says, I take the Bible seriously because I picked it up and had a five-minute daily Bible reading, and they're going to tell those who have spent years parsing over the verses these these people who spent years these scholars who 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 have written multiple books on just their spe specific field and they're going to say oh well they're not taking it seriously they just need to read it and take it for what it says if you want to read it and take it for what it says within context that's taking it seriously sorry that's just kind of my high <laughs> horse right now you know, my well, I mean, so much so that you're writing a book about it. I mean, sure, right? Well, because the accusations, the accusations of, oh, well, 
quote unquote, people who are progressive, they just don't care about the Bible. These are people who I can promise you have spent much more time studying the Bible than a lot of the bozo preachers who get up there and who just quote the Bible. I heard one the other day, Lee, and I say bozo in the most Christ-like way. Um, (laughs) He got up there and uh, there was a preacher and, and it was a clip I saw. And he said he got up there about abominations. He said, you know, I hear people saying that, you know, there are certain abominations we don't have to pay attention to. And he said, I, if God says it's an abomination, I don't care if it's Old Testament, or New Testament, I'm going to call it an abomination. Well, the Bible says it's an abomination to eat shellfish. It's an abomination to, uh, to, to have any type of sexual relation at all or even touch your wife when she is on her period. Those things are considered abominations in the Old Testament. I can promise you this guy does not think it's an abomination to go out to Red Lobster and eat seafood, eat shrimp. So when people say these things and people are listening to that, and I love the way that um, that that uh, that that Rosser, when he was on our program, how he brought up the fact that that's flattening the expert voice. We're, we're flattening the expert voice because people pick up the Bible and they go, oh, I can just read it for myself. And, in, and that would be like me going to a doctor's office and having all the reports there and never studied any of this and go, oh, I'm just going to read this for myself. And, 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 you know, and I could, if, if, like for you, for example, I'm sure that there's all sorts of data you collect and terminology that you use and things that you have spent years studying that if I were to walk into your office and say, okay, Kevin, just pick this up, read it, and go uh, go help somebody out today. Go go ahead and give them a uh, an adjustment. And I could read that information and say, hey, Lee, I don't know what the big deal is. I've got this information right here. I can, I can fix them right here, right now. It doesn't work that way. We begin to flatten the expert voice. And, you know, and by the way, I'm not claiming I'm an expert. I'm not. I don't have my doctor's degree. I'm not an expert. That's why it's so important we listen to what the experts say instead of just thinking that we are the experts. Well, absolutely. And even in terms of faith, it's, it's, it, it befuddles me that people don't see how they are. I'm, I'm trying to think of how I want to say this without sounding like a judgmental turd, but it, it, I, I may just, just say it and just be a judgmental turd. I mean, it's, it, it blows my mind how people like you just said, how they try to sanitize the Bible and they fail to see how much of their predispositions and their own subcultural conditioning is driving that ideology forward. And yeah. an example that, that I can remember is thinking about um, Ruth, for example. I mean, we remember the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is a great story in Scripture. You know, you have Ruth, you have Boaz, you have Ruth. She's a Moabite and, you know, her husband dies. She goes with her mother-in-law, Naomi. They go back to Israel. She meets Boaz, who was, I think, the cousin, if I recall correctly, of her deceased husband and who was also uh, one of the next in line that should care for her, if, if that's the case. Well, she finds Boaz. She goes to work in his vineyard. Boaz takes a shine to her and Naomi says, oh, you found Boaz. Well, here's what you need to do. Whenever, you know, we're celebrating the harvest and he's had plenty to drink, you need to go and seduce him. And then the Bible says that she did that. She went and she, quote, uncovered his feet. And that is a Hebrew euphemism that means she had sex with a guy. Yeah. And it's, you know, you read after experts. Am I a Hebrew expert? No, I'm not. There are plenty of Hebrew experts that understand idiom. They understand figures of speech. They understand the Hebrew language. They understand the constructions, the generic constructions of that day. 
and they all are almost unanimous in saying that she went and they got busy. They went and got jiggy with it, you might say. They had relations. She had sex with a guy. Well, there are people because of their preconceptions, because of their conceptions of premarital sex, they will say that is not what she actually did. You know, the same thing's true of Rahab the harlot. She was a harlot. She was a whore. She was a prostitute that ran a brothel in Jericho. And what do the Hebrew spies, the Israelite spies that go to spy out Jericho? Apparently they went to the brothel. Oh no, no. She was an innkeeper. She, she, she was the proprietor of a hotel. Nope. She was a mistress. She was the owner of a brothel. We sanitize scripture and we do it in those situations because what the Bible actually is saying flies in the face of our own standards. Well, and, a and lot the of, same is true with mythology. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and Lee, for me, look, I, I went to preaching school, okay? And we studied every book of the Bible, every verse of the Bible, but we glossed over a lot of these texts. And so a lot of Christians, many Christians don't realize that these texts are even in the Bible or they have been taught to dismiss them without even engaging in the text. Oh, well, that's Old Testament. You know, that I, I don't know how many times I've heard Christians say that. Oh, that's Old Testament. Well, I still think it's from God. And yeah. so, you know, ultimately, I believe it's inspired. Now, once again, what that means, we have to allow the Bible to give us that definition. We can't say, well, here's what inspiration is. We have to actually allow the Bible to tell us what inspiration is, and then we can either accept it for what it is, or we can we can choose to reject it. But, you know, I think of so many passages. I mean, I remember hearing that, well, the laws in the Old Testament were there to protect women. And there are some that, yes, granted, there might be some protective laws in that, maybe, but then you start reading some of the, and by the way, I believe that that's the way I argued for a long time until I actually started studying these specific passages. And, you know, I, I think about how, for example, when um, the, the law in Deuteronomy, where the Bible says that if you're going in and you're, you're conquering these nations and you see a woman and you're attracted to her, you think she's hot. Well, you know, after you've killed her husband, because you're destroying all of them. After you kill everybody, you can take her, but then she has to trim her, her nails and she has to shave her head and she she has to mourn her family, which you just slaughtered. So she's mourning her, their family you just slaughtered. Then you can, you can take her as a wife, you can have sex with her, but if she does not sexually please you, you can send her away. Now that's some protective laws right there, right? I mean, wow, that's that's just wonderful. I mean, we we let's let's stitch that on a pillow somewhere and uh, you know, let's hang that one in our house. This stuff's in the Bible, and we can either choose to engage with it honestly, or we can be superficial and say, Oh, that's old testament. I don't have to deal with it. Well, and what we have to realize is that whatever perspective we take and whichever of those two strategies we utilize, there are consequences of those strategies. And if we're going to do the work, the hard work of studying God's word, and we're going to do the hard work of piecing it together and making it fit in the way God intended for it to fit and in the way that the ancient reader would have made it fit and the way that the ancient writer intended for it to fit. If we're going to do that hard work, one of the things that is incredibly helpful 
and I would say nearly immeasurably helpful is being able to accept that myth and parable is a genre that God used to communicate truth to those people in the long ago so that we could know something about him today. And that's really not a scary concept whenever we consider it in those terms. It's really not as big a deal as we make it out to be. It's not saying that the Bible is a book full of lies and myths and fairy tales. It's not saying that at all. There's nothing wrong with admitting that there is some mythology within scripture. There's nothing wrong with that at all. So here's the kicker. Fundamentalist, conservative Christians, and atheists fall prey to the same error. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's what's crazy about it, right? Because because on the one hand, you have these fundamentalist, conservative Christians who say, well— in order to accept the Bible, it has to meet these expectations. And then there's this endless criteria that Christians put on the Bible, and it just continues to to change and adapt because to them it's a battle, and we're trying to save the Bible as if the Bible needs saving, for crying out loud. And so so there's this, it becomes a war, right? It becomes a war. So now it's you got to believe the Bible this way. You have to believe it this way. And, and this way typically is literally, and this is it, and this is what it's what God says, and that settles it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very straightforward, superficial, direct way of reading Scripture. That's that's a flaw. That's a, that's an erroneous way. I'm very confident in stating that's an erroneous way of reading Scripture. It's not now, the best way, at now, the very on least. The, on the other hand, you have atheists who listen to these Christians and say, okay, we're going to do exactly what you tell us to do. We're going to read this thing, and they read it, and they go, okay, so there's all sorts of misogynistic behavior in here. Lot is the only one who was not destroyed in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The only one. He was considered a righteous, just man. Side point, he offered, you know, I don't know, his virgin daughters. Be up, be, let's, hey, here, I got my virgin daughters if you want to rape them. Oh, that's that's a just thing to do because, hey, at least you were hospitable, so... Way to go. (laughs) He's considered a judge. Nothing is ever said about that as being bad. Nothing. Why? Because that was the culture they lived in. It was a misogynistic culture. Nothing is said about, you know, we talk about the word sexist. That's, that's for us today. Yes, we can look at some of this and say today we understand that as being sexist, but, but the whole world was sexist back then. Yeah, they didn't. They, I mean, that was the way it operated. I'm not saying it's right. I believe it's wrong, but that's I'm saying it was, that it's though. anachronistic to say, "Oh, that's sexist." Back then, there was no such thing. That's that was a patriarchal world. It was truly a man's world, and women just lived in it so much that they were property. The father, the father owned the daughter, and that's why when she got married, the father it was a transaction for the father to give his daughter, who was property, to the to the uh, the the new husband. And then at that point, the husband owned that wife. And the husband could have as many sex partners as he wanted. He could have concubines. He could have multiple wives. Yeah, the wife, though, if she cheated one time, she was to be put to death. So don't tell me that the Bible is not misogynistic based upon what that meaning actually is. Don't tell me that, oh, no, 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 that's not how the Bible, that is what is in the Bible. And when people say, well, there's things recorded in the Bible that God, you know, clearly doesn't approve of or that the the writers didn't approve of, they just put it in the Bible. Sure, there are times that happen, but there are also commands and laws that the authors did put in there. And we have to begin to ask, well, now what does that do to our view of inspiration? 
uh, and 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 so I think that the the the, the atheists, or at least I'm going to say the antagonistic atheists, those who try to attack Christianity, as well as the fundamental Christian, they both have the same problem. They are reading the Bible in a modernized way. They have been taught to read the Bible in a very domesticated, sanitized way. And on the one hand, it makes Christianity look really bad. And on the other, these atheists don't understand, well, why are Christians ignoring all these passages? Well, and I'm sitting here saying, well, we're not ignoring them. We have to deal with them, but there are ways to understand the Bible other than just this new modern conservative fundamentalist idea. In fact, if you look at how the early church fathers understood Scripture, they viewed it in a very uh, mystical way. They believed that Scripture had to, a lot of Scripture had to be spiritualized. And I'm not going to go into all that because that's in my book as well. Uh, but the thing is, is that how we're trying to read Scripture today, what a lot of Christians don't realize is it's a very modern way of understanding Scripture. And, and both atheists and a lot of conservative fundamentalist Christians are falling prey to that same presuppositional um, belief that the Bible's supposed to fit this certain mold. Well, and I think that what you just said and how you you know, elucidated what— the misogynistic backdrop of the culture was that scripture comes yeah. from. It's an ancient, it was written through an ancient worldview. Exactly. These mythological passages, these passages that are more than likely probably parabolic or mythical stories, that's the same thing. That is the same type of concept that the misogyny emanates from in scripture. It was a part of their culture. It was a part of their paradigm. Part of the way that truth was revealed then, and this is the point we made earlier when we talked about Marvel movies and Western movies, part of the way that truth is revealed now is the same as the way it was revealed then. It is done through telling stories. These stories are the stories that, for whatever reason, God wanted to keep in Scripture. Whatever your perspective on inspiration is, these stories are in the Bible for a reason. And if it seems to strain credulity, if it seems to go against the meta narrative of Scripture, like we talked about with Job, or if there's no archaeological evidence for Assyria's or Nineveh's total capitulation to the message of Jonah that he preached, if those things are the case, well, then maybe there's something else going on and maybe we would do better to shift our, our perspective on what genre these particular books and stories should fall into. Maybe if it doesn't jive very well with history, maybe there's something else going on that preserves the narrative truth that's being communicated in that story. Yeah. When, and, when the world, when, when we are faced with demonstrably true evidence, factual evidence that cannot be denied, and it is in opposition to the Bible, we have a choice to make. Yeah, We can either say, okay, the Bible is a book that it just needs to be thrown out. Clearly now it's been disproven. Let's just throw it out. We can do that, that and that's the way some people go. Or we can make another choice. We, we the, uh, Another option would be to say, well, no, I, I'm just going to stick with the Bible. No matter how clear 
the evidence is in front of me to the contrary of what the Bible states, I'm still going to stick to what the Bible says, which is why you still have your flat earthers, which is why you have people who still believe in geocentrism, which is why you have people who still believe in ancient reproductive biology. You have people because even though science has proved these things beyond any doubt, even though we have all sorts of evidence the clearly to prove to the contrary, there are people who still hang tight. Okay, well, that's one option. Or we can say, well, I am going to modernize the scriptures, and I'm just going to read it in a way that it's, it's going to kind of dismiss it or downplay it. And that's how some Christians have done. They've, they've just kind of pick and chose what they're going to take as figurative and say, oh, well, whenever there was bad science in the Bible, that's figurative. But that's being, dis- in my opinion, that's being dishonest too. That's being dismissive of what's there because that's not, they were not writing these things in that way. They really believed in this. They really believed in geocentrism. They believed in ancient reproductive biology. I mean, these are the things they, act- they believed in a flat earth. They believed in a three-tiered universe. All these things they actually believed. So what's, but what's the other alternative? The alternative, I believe, is that we accept that the Bible is a book that was written through an ancient worldview God allowed it to be written through an ancient worldview because God is a God who allows us to mature as a human race. God is a God who allows us choice. He allows us to develop as people and progress as individuals, which is what we've done throughout history. And so we take the Bible and we say, okay, well, even though God allowed them to write through their ideas of patriarch, uh, their patriarchal ideas that today we would say, okay, well, it's probably not good to believe you can just, you know, go into any woman and have sex with her. It's probably not, you know, it's probably not a good thing just to go up to somebody and shoot them and, and say, hey, now I've got your wife and she's my property now. That's probably not the best way based upon how we understand humans and humanity and how we should treat one another. It's probably not how we should act. So what do we do with that? Well, we we can say, but that's how they understood things back then. It's chronological snobbery to say, well, if I would have lived back then, I would have done things differently. No, you wouldn't. You would have done things just like they did. You know, it's just like today when people look in the past and go, oh, well, if I live back then. No, you wouldn't have because that was the culture. I can promise you, Lee, 500 years from now, maybe even 100 years from now, I know definitely 1,000 years from now, if this earth, if this earth is still here, people are going to look back at us and go, Man, we are so much smarter than those yahoos who had that dumb podcast who thought they knew what they were talking about. What a bunch of idiots! Because we are blinded by the very we, we are. We, it's like a, a fish doesn't know it's in water, right? Because that's all it knows. It's like with, we don't realize the ignorance we're living in because it's yeah. all we know, and so we we can't. You know that's why I, I love C.S. Lewis. He talks about this chronological snobbery because we don't even know we're blinded by it. So people are going to look back to us just as every generation has looked back and says, oh, look how far we've come. Look how far we've come. We're so smart. But yeah. then the next generation is going to do the same thing. So the Bible was written through an ancient worldview. And I could talk about this all day long, but there's it's not just in these stories. It's not just in the science. It's not just in the ancient assumptions. It's in everything. The Bible is written through an ancient worldview in everything. And unless we're willing to accept it for what it is, we're going to just completely rewrite the Bible to fit whatever we want it to say, which is unfortunately what many Christians have done. Well, the Bible was written through an ancient worldview from an ancient perspective. And when we understand that and we realize that, it's not a stretch to understand and accept that they use the tropes and conventions of their time to communicate the truth that God revealed to them. To the best of their ability. To the best of their ability. Yeah. 
And myth, fiction is one of those tropes. Myth is one of those conventions. And I really believe that as Christians, if we can accept that there is mythological fiction in the Bible that is still absolutely true and communicates truth, that we're really in a better place and that we stand on a more firm footing to be able to rightly divide the word. That's my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Maybe this has all been an exercise in futility and we're just maybe, as wrong yeah, as maybe, we can you be. Know, maybe we're the ones that are so steeped in our ignorance we can't see it. But at least I'm willing to admit we're all <laughs> steeped in ignorance. I, and, and, and there are so many things we don't know right now that people are going to look back at our day and time and talk about how how uninformed and ignorant we are because that's just how humanity works as it progresses. We learn, yeah. we learn, and we learn, and we learn, and we trial. We have trial and error, and you know it. it but it comes back to you know because we. Sorry, I've gone on about ten tangents in this episode, but <laughs> you know that's why I love you, baby. To say that myth cannot be a biblical genre is it, that that's simply just not true. Um, yeah. It's 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 not true. I mean, that's that's clearly myth is a biblical genre in the Bible. Now, I'm willing to grant that there are a lot of gray areas in that, but I do believe that there is a lot more myth in the Old Testament than we have. At least I have formally believed. Yeah, well, and I agree with you on that, and I think that that's if, whenever we can accept that that is the case, it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to upend your faith. It doesn't have to turn everything all topsy-turvy and upside down. It's okay. It's okay that there is, if, if there is racism in scripture, if there is sexism in scripture, misogyny in scripture, if there's slavery in scripture, and we're okay with all of that, I think we can be okay with some stories that may not be literally true. Yeah. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that. So Well, and I think and I think a lot of people um I think a lot of people aren't okay with that. You know, because because they And that's think, what's weird. That's yeah, what well, is they, so weird. They think because it's in the Bible, uh, or even because it was a law, or because people at that time believed it, then it must be universally true for all time. And I mean that's that's why a lot of Christians, especially in the South, who believed that slavery was okay. It's because the Bible taught it, and it would. Now there were a lot of Christians who also believed in abolition and were behind it as well. So I don't. I don't want to act like I'm one sided on this thing. I want to be honest. But there were also a lot of conservative Christians. In fact, the ones who took a more literal approach, a straightforward approach to Scripture, were the ones who believed that uh, the abolition shouldn't happen. They did. They they believe that slavery was okay. That you know, in fact, it was something we shouldn't overturn slavery because it's a biblical concept. So those are the things that scare me. Is when you know you have either Christians who say that it's in the Bible, therefore it's okay, or the Christians who go, well, it's in the Bible, so we have to find a way to sanitize it. I think we can we can say it's in the Bible, and it's and it's wrong. So what does that mean? I, yeah. I, you know, I, those are the, you know, we have to be willing to admit the truth of what's in the, yes, the Bible teaches bad science. Yes, the Bible teaches racist forms of racism and prejudice. Yes, the Bible uh, at times not only has, but encourages in some verses um, forms of misogynistic behavior. I mean, talking about calling your, your husband Lord, I mean, that's, that's in the New Testament. How many preachers get up and say, call your husband Lord? Um, you know, I've we, heard we, a few, believe it or not. 
Well, that's another subject for another time. But, you know, the, the, the idea, though, presented is, well, and that's the danger, right? That's the danger of taking the Bible, believing that if it's in there, then we have to accept it as God's will and follow it and having that all or nothing approach, that you know, false dichotomy. It's if, if it's in there, it must be good. If it's if it's ever an instruction, it must be good instead of, well, this was what did this mean during this point in time and and how does that translate to today? So once again, so many different ways we could take this, but just the idea of myth, getting back to the the topic here, myth as a genre as a biblical genre is something we see all throughout scripture and we have to be willing to accept it as well as the we have to accept the ugly parts of scripture. We have to accept parts of scripture that are, are myth, parabolic. We have to be willing to take that into consideration when determining how we relate to it. Yeah, and there's a lot of good that comes from that. There's so much good that comes from it because it forces us to grow beyond where we are. It forces us to consider things that are uncomfortable. And the best growth comes when you're uncomfortable. In jujitsu, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable quick, and your skills don't improve unless you are forced into some uncomfortable positions. And the same thing is true with your Christian walk. If it's all just wine and roses the whole time, if you're never challenged in your faith, then your faith won't grow. And some, sometimes this idea, talking about and considering everything that we've chatted about in this episode, it's a challenge. It, it, it can be a challenge to someone's faith. But as we explore our faith, the challenges are going to arise. And we can't ever let those challenges get in the way of our pursuit of God's grace. We can't allow those things to become impediments of pursuing those higher ideals and those loftier, those weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. If we allow our faith to be run roughshod over because there's myth in the scriptures and because Jonah isn't telling literal history or Job isn't telling literal history, or maybe there are some major liberties that were taken with the book of Daniel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we're not able to consider those things in a mature way and in a way that that maintains biblical credibility, well, then we're really in a pretty sorry state. And I think that whenever we can start with just the simple baby step of being able to accept, maybe not even agree with, but accept that it's a possibility. And I believe it's true, but that there's a possibility that myth is a way that the Holy Spirit chose to reveal truth to mankind. Well, then that's a pretty good first step to take. So, I mean, dude, we've gone on and dude, I could go on for another hour and a half. I'm loving this conversation. This is great. We haven't had one of these raw, real conversations. It feels like in a while, but yeah, I feel like I need to repent for causing, calling a preacher, you know, bozo, but (laughs) Jesus called here to Fox. So there's my, there's my authorization. There's your authorization. And and look, I I want, look, I get fired up. And I mean, this is the thing about having these conversations is these are just real and honest. I I, I promise I'm harmless. I don't mean any uh, personal attacks by these things, but it is, it is very frustrating because I have seen people's faith absolutely destroyed because people place themselves in positions of authority and just say the just biggest bunch of junk and they don't even allow it to be debatable or yeah, yeah question. And, and look, and that's why Lee, you and I always, we, please question everything we're saying. Go research what we're saying. Don't take my word for it, please. Like, like this is something that we encourage people. Just think, like, 
think for yourself and be able to have your own faith. And when, especially when you talk about scholarship, and this is why I'm just not a fan of social media, because we're not meant to hear all these different voices who think that they have the truth, right? I mean, we, we, we have to be careful with how we spend our time. And, you know, I try to make sure that when I am researching, I'm, do, I'm researching not just anybody, but I'm actually trying to find people who are considered scholars and specialists in their field. And I don't just listen to one. I try to get a general consensus of, okay, what does scholarship say about this topic? Because typically there is, contrary to belief, there usually is a, a scholarly consensus. And when you have a group of individuals who have studied one specific topic and they have reached some agreement, we need to be willing to listen to what that agreement is, at least be open to it, as opposed to saying, well, my great uncle Jeb over here, he read the Bible and he he's really smart. And, you know, he reads the Bible five minutes every day or 10 minutes every day, and he really knows his Bible well. Being able to quote scripture does not mean you know your... Bro- I could quote scripture 10 years ago, and I didn't have a clue what the Bible was. So <laughs> well, Satan I, quoted scripture too, so yeah, I mean, yeah. there's that. And I, and I don't know. I probably still don't have much of a clue what it is. But that you know, it's one of those things where we just have to allow ourselves to take the Bible seriously. And I want to repeat that. Because if we are not willing to take the Bible on its own terms, we're not taking the Bible seriously. I agree 100% with that. And with that, I think we'll go ahead and sign off. This has been a good episode because, brother, I'm going to keep feeding the beast. You're going to keep feeding the beast. And we're both going to end we gotta, up We got to just cut this thing off, man. Yeah, we, we have to because we're going to both end up being bozos before it's all said and done. If we, we 2.30 a.m. No, not really. 2.30 in the morning. No, that would be pretty amazing, though. But if you guys hung through it and listened to it this long, we appreciate all of you. We love all of you. We, we love our audience. We love the good that this is doing. We love hearing from you and, and we're encouraged by it. We're encouraged by the growth we're seeing. We're encouraged by the words that you share with us, not only in the discussion board, but also through messenger, also through email. We appreciate you guys tremendously. We love you all. Please share this podcast with others. Please share it on Facebook, share it on Instagram, share it on social media, share it with everybody far and wide. We appreciate it. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. That helps a ton. It helps way more than you know. It helps put more eyes. I guess maybe ears would be a better way to say it on our podcast. And we want to get out in front of as many people as we can. So thank you all very much. God bless you all. And we bid you all a good day.